So with that, Pastor Aaron has been teaching through the book of John, and we have Natalie, who is going to be our scripture reader this morning. So if you would turn to John chapter 15, she'll read our passage. I have chapter 14. You are right. The slide is wrong. It's, you it's are fine. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> so John chapter 14, 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will, I will take you myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father." Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Amen. Thank you, Natalie. Good morning, church family. How are you? Good? Uh, my name is Aaron. If you're new, I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. Glad to have you. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the confusion, that's on me because one of the things that we're doing right now is we're going through the, the, the book of John and what we've been doing up until last week is we've been going just line by line, verse by verse, kind of straight through. But we're in this section called the Upper Room Discourse, uh, John chapters 14 through 17. And it's a, it's a series of conversations and prayers and teachings between Jesus and his disciples on the night before his, uh, his arrest and his betrayal and his, ultimately his, his death and resurrection. And so what we're doing is we're taking things for the next few months, we're going to take things a little bit out of order and we're going to go kind of through the themes because, you know, as you read through John chapters 14 through 17, you notice these certain themes just kind of keep coming up over and over and over again. Themes like unity, themes like the Holy Spirit, themes like the relationship between the Father and the Son. And so we're going to look at these four chapters kind of as a unit, theme by theme, line by line. And so uh, what I've kind of requested or asked or just encouraged, maybe a better way to put it, is for these next couple months, I just want to encourage you to keep reading and rereading John 14 through 17. Keep reading this upper room discourse, the what's sometimes called the high priestly prayer of Jesus, and just let it kind of soak in. It, it, do it a little bit differently. Maybe this is less about like, I'm going to go line by line exegetically and more of just kind of letting these waves of teaching and insight crash over you and kind of seep its way into your heart and into your mind and into your very soul, I pray by God's grace. And so today we're looking at this really, really uh, famous claim of Jesus that he is the way, the truth, the life. And so I would like to invite us all to go before the Lord in prayer right now. I'll invite you to pray for me uh, as I begin this time with prayer. God, would you help us today to approach you through our Savior, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. God, thank you that you have made a way. Thank you, even as we've, as we've just been singing, that your, your grace is what has made it that we can come to you. God, thank you that our Savior, Jesus, makes it so that we can pray like this right now and that you listen to us. God, for myself, I ask that you would lead and guide and direct my words, that I would only teach that which is in line with your truth and which is helpful for the building up of the body. God, I pray for every single one of us to have soft hearts, teachable hearts. God, even uh, reflective hearts today that we might see where you want to speak to us, to change us, and to grow us. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. 
So uh, years ago, before I ever lived in Seattle, uh, I grew up in, in Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, my wife, though, her, her family is from the Seattle area, from Washington originally, and so we would always come down and we would visit family. And one year, our family vacation, it was around Thanksgiving time, and we came to Seattle. Well, we didn't come to Seattle. We went to Bonnie Lake. That's where her mom lives. But, you know, like, close enough. Anybody outside of Washington State, like the western half of Washington, just is Seattle. But we were in Bonnie Lake and uh, staying with my mother-in-law and had a nice Thanksgiving. And then we stayed through the weekend and our big like vacation treat was for us to go to our first game at what was at the time Quest Field, a Monday night football game between the Seahawks and the Green Bay Packers. Uh, This would have been, I don't even remember what year this was, uh, but 2006, thank you, my calendar slash wife. Anybody remember that game? It was Monday Night Football. It was one of Brett Favre's last games. It was snowing a ton. Sean Alexander ran for something like 215 yards. It was just like amazing, amazing come from behind. I mean, it's Monday Night Football for crying out loud. I'm I'm from Anchorage, Alaska. They don't have professional sports there other than like ice fishing and whatever. But like... So, so like, this is incredible. It was like the highlight of our life, this amazing thing. We had two kids at the time, Mackenzie and Delaney, and they were very little. They were like two and one, or maybe Delaney was even less than one. She's like six, seven months old. And we left them with grandma, with my mother-in-law. And the game was amazing. And the Seahawks won. And it was all wonderful. And then I descended into what Dante would have described as the seventh circle of hell, known as Seattle traffic in the snow trying to leave and trying to get back to my mother-in-law's house in Bonnie Lake where my children were because we had a 7 a.m. flight the next morning back to Anchorage. We accidentally left our kids with grandma for their first overnighter because we never made it back to Bonnie Lake. The traffic was so bad. Somewhere around four o'clock in the morning, my mother-in-law packed up our kids, packed up our suitcases, met us heading back north from Bonnie Lake, uh, and, and we abandoned the car. We abandoned the attempt to drive away from Seattle and headed back up to SeaTac. We literally like sprinted like the movie Home Alone through the airport. We got on the airplane. They closed the door behind us. We sat down on the airplane. The kids had slept great all night. Aaron Lynn actually slept pretty good in the passenger seat all night. I had been awake driving all night and it's seven o'clock in the morning. So the chipper flight attendants and the little kids are like, ah, let's play. And I'm just like, I hate everything right now. Now in the moment, in the moment, see, I'm, I was used to driving in the snow. I, 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 I grew up driving in snow. I had to take my driver's license test in, you know, in Alaska and learn how to drive on snow. And, and it was just maddening to me. Like, why can no one drive in the snow? Why are the roads so bad? It was only a few inches. It wasn't like some, you know, mass. I mean, it was a pretty big snowstorm, but it was just like, this shouldn't, you know, incapacitate a whole city the way it did. And, and, and I, I have a deep, passionate hatred for the 167 highway to this day. I hate that highway so much. Like my eye will twinge and, and, and twitch a little bit every time I get on it. And all I wanted, all I wanted desperately in the middle of the night was a way to get back to my kids. All I wanted was just some path. Like, like I'm stuck on this road. I can't go this way because there's snow. I can't go that way because there's cars. I can't go that way because there's Seattle drivers. And this was like 12 years ago. It was like before it got really bad. I'm just, all I wanted was for like, like a helicopter to like drop down one of these big like road plower things they have up in Alaska and just like blaze a path, just like knocking cars and snow out of the way. I just, I wanted a way to get back to my kids. Today, we're looking at this well-known claim of Jesus. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be someone that goes to church or reads the Bible regularly to know that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so the the thing we're going to do today is we're going to ask some questions I'll start us off by asking a few questions. I'll put these questions into your mind. If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the first question is this. Well, where are we going? If he's the way, where are we going? And number two, if we're going somewhere, well, how do we get there? And then the third question, which I hope to spend the most amount of time on, is why do we resist? If he is the way, if he is the truth, if he is the life, why do we resist going to where he's inviting us, taking the path that he's given to us. Now, I want to say something really quickly. Uh, 
A quick note on translation. I uh, preach out of the ESV translation. This has been since Sound City launched. We as the elder team felt like this was a, uh, the, just the best translation to serve our body. It's really, really well done. Uh, I love the ESV translation. I also use on occasion uh, the CSB. It's a newer translation. Uh, that's the one I've been personally reading just kind of in my devotional time and, and working my way through it. This passage today is notorious for having some uh, translation difficulties, having some things where scholars and translators kind of debate back and forth on, on how you say the words. Like you, you probably even heard, you know, in my father's house, there are many rooms. Some of you are familiar with the old King James, right? That actually goes back to Tyndale. The, in my father's house, there are many mansions. Like, where the heck did mansions come from? And, uh, and, and so I actually went through, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I went through 10 different translations this week. The ESV, the Christian Standard, the New English Translation, the Complete Jewish Bible, which is a Messianic Jewish translation, New Living, NIV, King James. I went King James, thouest. No, I did. And uh, Revised Standard, New American Standard. I even looked at the message. I even took a trip in the Wayback Machine to 1993 and that famous youth group audio adrenaline version where they say it's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I listened to audio adrenaline for you guys this week, okay? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something that I don't do often. And I'm actually going to preach from the New Living Translation today. And so you guys have various translations. Probably most of you have an ESV. The words that are going to be up on the screen come from the New Living because after going back and forth between 10 translations, six commentaries, one audio adrenaline, I feel like this is the one that kind of captured some of the translation nuance the best. So if you're trying to follow along in your own Bible, that's totally great. And, and ESV is fine. I just feel like they went with some more traditional sounding language instead of what I think is maybe the best uh, translation for capturing the nuance and the meaning. So with that said, let's start back in chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Pause. Okay. We have to flash back to November. Why is he telling them not to have their hearts troubled? If you remember chapter 13, this is starting 14, back in 13, it starts out with Jesus washing his disciples' feet. You guys remember that? And that led to some conversation and argument, and people are kind of upset. Whoa, Jesus, why are you washing our feet? And then they, then they started celebrating the, the Passover meal together, right? They're eating, they're drinking, and Jesus says, what? One of you will betray me. And there's like this awkward murmuring and every, like, you, you got to remember, like, this, this night is filled with some tension. And then immediately preceding this, Lord, Peter's asking, you know, Lord, where are you going to go? And Jesus says, uh, you can't follow me. And Peter goes, I will follow you. And Jesus says to Peter, before the night is even done, you're going to deny me three times. So it's in the context of this, you know, Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial being predicted and the awkwardness of the evening. There's a tension there. And Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. Some of your translations say, believe in God or, or you believe in God. Believe also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. Which this is the second time in the Gospel of John that he references his father's home. Do you guys remember back in chapter 2, way back in chapter 2, when he talks about his father's house being the temple? If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I am going. You know the way. No, we don't, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going. How can we know the way? I, I love Thomas. Poor Thomas sometimes gets called doubting Thomas. I view him as pragmatic Thomas. Uh, Thomas, is, if, <laughs> Thomas is an Enneagram one, I think. He just, he wants to know the information. To, like, back in uh, the earlier chapters, like 11, before Jesus goes to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, and like, hey, we can't go to Bethany. The authorities are looking for you. And Jesus is like, we gotta go. It's the time. And Thomas is like, all right, well, let's go so we can all just die with Jesus. Let's do this. Like, Wow, Thomas. No, Lord, we do not know. We have no idea where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am 
the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. This is the sixth of seven I am statements that John records of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. We're going to get to the, I am the the vine. We're going to get that one coming up here in just a few weeks. He said, if you had really known me, you would have known who my father is. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, Philip, remember Philip? He said, Lord, show us the father and, and we will be satisfied Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak, they're not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work that you have seen me do. Uh, Next week, really excited, uh, I get to invite a friend of mine who is a church planter in Seattle. His name's Justin Anderson. He's going to be preaching for us next week. He is an incredibly gifted preacher and leader. He's been uh, at Doxa Church for the last two years over in Bellevue as a kind of a co-teaching pastor with with, uh, Jeff Vanderstelt there. He's planted churches in Phoenix and in San Francisco. He's planting a church here in Seattle soon. So he next week is going to teach on this idea of the Father and the Son. So if you've got a lot of questions about what Jesus Jesus just said there, don't worry, we're going to dive into that at at length next week. But I simply want to point out to you here, Philip is asking to see God. And that is something that no human being can do. You guys know that the Bible says that in multiple places, no one can see God and live. Even Moses, the one who came the closest, still only could see the back of God and that with God's hand covering the, 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 the cleft in the rock where he was. I mean, no one can see God and live. Philip is asking for something impossible. He's asking for something beyond where Moses got to go. And what Jesus is saying to him is, you are seeing God as humanity can see him. Jesus is the God that mankind can look at. Jesus, bottom line, is claiming to have divine authority. So that's our passage. Now let's answer some of these questions based on this. So the first question is, where are we trying to go? All right, commonly, commonly, if I was to say something like, Jesus is the only path to, and you fill in the blank, what would a lot of people often say? Jesus is the only pathway to heaven. That's right. Is that what exactly he said? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. So a couple things about this. We're trying to go to the Father. We're trying to go to the Father. Now, the Father and heaven, there's a relationship there. So it's not wrong to say we're trying to go to heaven, but let's keep our, our, our biblical language straight here. First of all, number one, the, we want to go to the Father because the Father is where life can be found. If any of you remember back in John chapter five, he said, Jesus said, truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who will hear will live for as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted the son to have life in himself. And that turned into a big controversy and everyone tried to kill Jesus because he was claiming to have life the same way that God does. Listen, um, for for many of you, this will be recapped, but just in case you've missed it, the, the, the gospel of John never uses the word repent. Matthew, Mark, Luke, when Jesus is teaching, he, you know, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. There's, there's this idea of we've done wrong. We've broken God's laws. We need to repent and receive forgiveness. That's all true. That's all, that's all uh, absolutely biblical. John just presents the problem a little bit differently. He presents the problem as we have been disconnected from the source of life. 
And the whole idea of like a vine and branches, like the branches are not going to grow. They're not going to produce any fruit if they're not connected to the vine. If you, if you cut branches off of your trees, they're not going to produce apples just lying there dead on the ground. They have to be grafted in, plugged in, and connected in. Or to kind of update it a little bit, I've been using the analogy of, you know, in the morning when you unplug your phone from the wall, you unplug it from the source of power and life, your phone still is kind of working throughout the day, but all day long, it's just dying. Your phone is dying, right? But it's just such a dramatic way to put it, right? Like other things like stop working, but your phone and better, they die, like right in your lap, right? We need to be with the Father because he is the source of life. And because of our sin and because of our rebellion, we've run away from God. We've disconnected ourselves from the source of life. We need to be reconnected with him. Now, when we are connected with the Father, the, the, another challenge is that, that the Father, he lives in heaven. The Father lives and rules from heaven. Uh, you can see this in, in like places like Psalm 11, 4, where it says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, his throne, is in heaven. His eyes watch and his gaze examines everyone. So I need to be connected with the Father. The problem is the Father's in heaven. I can't get to heaven on my own because I am a mortal and I'm separated from God, and, but I need to be with God, but I need to be in heaven to be with God and I can't get there, right? You guys tracking with me? This is how John is setting up the problem. In John chapter two, when Jesus calls the temple in Jerusalem, he calls it my father's house. There's something really interesting about that because the temple represents the place where heaven and earth meet. At the risk of sounding overly science fiction-y, it's like earth is our dimension and heaven is God's dimension. I just took some of my kids to go see the new Spider-Man uh, cartoon and there's like the whole multiverse thing and this dimension Spider-Man and it was, it was like, oh yeah, great. I'm not getting my theology from Spider-Man, by the way, but, there, but, but just that kind of idea of like there's these different dimensions and, and, and heaven is God's dimension and earth is our dimension, it's our domain, and the temple is where they, where they overlap. And the priest would, would go behind the curtain. The high priest, once a year, would go behind the curtain, and it's, it's as though he's stepping into heaven. What's, what's in that Holy of Holies room? Do you guys remember? The, the, the Ark of the Covenant. And what's on top of the Ark of the Covenant? The, the cherubim and their wings, and it's called the what? It's called the, the mercy seat. That's the throne of God. So the high priest is like literally stepping into the throne room of God, which according to the psalmist is that's heaven. So this idea of like, we need to be with God. We need to be connected with God, which means we need to be in heaven, but only the high priest gets to go to heaven. Only the high priest gets to, to enter in regularly into that domain. How will we get connected? We want to go to heaven because God is there. Just like I said at the beginning in my, in my illustration, I didn't want to go to my mother-in-law's house just because it's my mother-in-law's house. I wanted to go to my mother-in-law's house because that's where my kids were. This has far more to do with relationship than location. This has far more to do with a, 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 a connection of love, not a connection of place. Heaven is important, but it's only important because that's where God is. Now, I do want to skip ahead in the story because it's something interesting to think about that, that this idea of the temple being God's place where heaven and earth come together. If you skip ahead in the story and you go to Revelation chapter 21, which I believe was written by the same apostle John as wrote this gospel, he tells us, there's this vision, he says, I saw a new heaven and I saw a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to this, this is, the, this is it. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself 
will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Friends, the good news of the conclusion of the story of the gospel is not that we, quote, go to heaven when we die, but that heaven and earth become one. And we are with God. We are with the Father in perfection for all of eternity. No more sorrow, no more sickness. I just got a text this morning from a pastor friend of mine in Texas that his, his youngest daughter has been diagnosed with uh, lymphoma. I had a conversation with someone else about uh, someone struggling with, with, uh, with dementia. Just all the brokenness. Uh, uh, one of our staff members, husband, just had a heart surgery this week. All of the death and the dying and the sorrow and the sadness one day will be done away with forever because we will be in the dwelling place of God himself. Is that good news to anyone here this morning? Charles Spurgeon says, we are not to mourn for Jesus because he said he was going away like we might as one slain for battle who will never come back to us. He has gone for a little while to another country, to the great father's house upon a most gracious and necessary errand. I go to prepare a place for you. The spirit of God is down here to prepare us for the place. The son of God is up yonder to prepare the place for us. One day we will be with God. So then the question is, how do we get there? That all sounds great. I want to be connected with the Father. I want to be in heaven with him. I want heaven and earth to become one. How? Well, you, you know the answer, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus. The way, uh, that word way in the Greek can also be translated as the path or the road. So it really is, it's like, it's like that idea of like there's this road, there's this path, there's a, there's a way that we can journey, there's a way that we can be with the Father, there's a way that we can be, a, a, a preview of that final experience of heaven on earth. The way is Jesus. And then he adds on, because they're asking him about the way, but Jesus adds on, he's like, and, and, I'm, and I'm the truth. Like he doesn't just say, I'm telling you the truth, he says, I am the truth. Like there is nothing about me that you cannot trust. There's nothing about me that you cannot believe. And then he says, I am the life, which is incredible because he says, he says, I've got this life. It's like what he said back in John chapter five. I have this life within me. You want to be plugged in so that you're not just living a life of slowly breathing to death. You want to be plugged back in for eternal life. You want to receive this, this God life today and a, and a, and a hope for eternal life. Well, it's me. So he's not just the path. He is truth itself and he is life itself. So the, the answer to how do we get there is, that's the simplest answer, right? It's Jesus. But, but specifically, what does that mean to take the Jesus path? I think the answer comes back in verse one where he said, trust in God, trust in me. Now this word, I'm gonna, I wanna teach you guys a little bit of Greek, okay? I'm gonna teach you guys a little bit of Greek. I don't do this often, but you know, you've got some, uh, you've got some maybe like family celebration coming up or whatever. You wanna really be the life of the party? Uh, I got you covered. Here we go. The word I wanna teach you today is pisteuo. Pisteuo, okay? Uh, the word pisteuo is a word that is translated as, depending on which translation, it's translated as believe or to have faith or to trust. It's all throughout the Bible. It's all throughout the Gospels. It is one of the central themes, the central theme, I would even say, of the Gospel of John. Just for example, I, I, I did some searches this week. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew uses the word pisteuo and, and it's related words uh, 11 times. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark uses it 14 times. In the Gospel of Luke, Nine times. How many times would you guess John uses it in his gospel? 98 times. So a lot. Like three times as much as all of the other gospel writers combined. Paul uses it a lot, especially in Romans and, and, and Galatians. And, but, but John, he wins the Pisteuo Prize, okay? Here, here's what's really interesting about these, these three words, these three English words, because sometimes we talk about faith, 
And the word faith, I think for us, maybe as English speakers or kind of westernized thinkers, that may be a little harder of a one for us to grasp. We talk about faith, it feels a little bit esoteric, doesn't it? And I think that's okay because I think faith touches on the mystery part. Do, Do we know everything as Christians? Okay, let me get a more enthusiastic. Do we know everything as Christians? Like, I want to make sure, okay, I want to make sure we're clear on this. However, believe, right? Believe, that's that's information, right? Uh, Are there some things that we do know as Christians? And we're to put our trust in the things that God has revealed to us. But, but we don't know everything. And so there's this faith. And, 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 and I think those two words, believe and faith, I think they help, help us understand that tension. The, the root word underneath is the same. It's still pisteuo. But then you enter into this word trust. And to me, maybe you think differently about these words, but just to me, trust implies action. Trust implies I'm going to do something. Uh, this last summer, I painted the outside of my house. And uh, I, I spent, I just kind of slowly chipped away out over the summer. And uh, it was kind of a, you know, put on headphones, listen to podcasts or music, and just, you know, enjoyed painting my house. Some of you think I'm sick for doing that, but I did. I enjoyed painting my house. But I'll tell you what I did not enjoy. Uh, time on the ladder. Because I hate heights. And I hate heights I don't mind airplanes. I don't mind roller coasters. I hate ledges and edges and roofs and ladders because I am high energy. And with that comes moving faster than I ought to. And with that comes being klutzy. And with that comes falling off of things. And so when I started painting my house, I said, there's no way around it. I have to go up on a ladder I have to do this. And so I set up the big stepladder, my you know, two-story house, not some gigantic thing or whatever. So, uh, you know, the top part of the eave, it's probably, it was about 24 feet off the ground. So I set the ladder up, I got my sprayer, and I got my bucket, and I got my brush. I'm like, here we go. Up the ladder. I got about eight feet up, and I just stopped. And I just stood there, and I took some deep breaths. And I walked back down. <laughs> and then I walked around and did some other things and set some stuff up and scraped a thing. And I go, okay, here we go. All right, come back. 16 feet, and I stopped. I felt like I was King Kong on the top of the Empire State Building or something. Like, how do people even survive? The oxygen is so thin up here. And I back down again. A third time, third try was the charm. I made it all the way up to the top of the ladder, and I'm, I'm up there, right? So it's so like, I believe, if you ask me, do I believe that the ladder will hold my, my weight and that the ladder is going to, yeah, I believe it. I have the information. Is there a faith component? Like, I don't understand how. Like, I don't, I don't study physics for crying out loud, but, you know, I believe that the ladder will hold my weight. But there's that trust that says, I'm going to walk up the ladder, It's not enough for us to say, yes, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. It's not enough for just to have this kind of, uh, 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 this idea, like this vague spiritual mysterious idea. We have to entrust ourselves to Jesus. We have to do something. We have to acknowledge that he is the son of God, that he is the Messiah. We have to humble ourselves and say, I need you. I am wrong. I need your grace. I've been disconnected from the source of life. I need to be reconnected. We we place our trust, we place our faith in Jesus' identity. Did you notice how in this passage he says things like, you know who I am. I and the Father are one. You know where I come from. You, You know who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one, the king sent from heaven to rescue and redeem us. And he is the son of God and he is divine and he has life within himself. And it's a way that we can't fully comprehend. But man, this section of scripture gives us some of the most behind the curtain insight into the life of who God is. And it's mind melting. But what we can know is this, that he is no mere ordinary religious teacher, that he is not just an itinerant Jewish rabbi, although those things apply to him. He's the son of God and he's the son of man. And we have faith in his identity. We have faith in his work. He said, all these things that I have come to do. And he says, you know, you, I'm going somewhere. I'm, I'm doing something. I'm preparing a place for you. He says, you should trust in these works that I'm doing. And nowhere, no work that Jesus did is greater than his work on the cross. When he is nailed to that Roman cross. And as he suffers and he dies in our place for our sins, for the purchase of our freedom and the, the redemption that he came to, to get for us, we place our faith 
faith in his work that he rose from the dead on the third day and he can offer new life and hope to all who place their pisteuo in him. This is our Jesus. This is what it means to take the Jesus path. Now, now here's where the rubber hits the road. Because nothing that I've said up to this point is particularly shocking or controversial. This is just kind of baseline biblical Christianity 101. The question is, why do we then resist Jesus as this one path to God? There's something in the human condition, the fallen human condition, that pushes back against Jesus as the one path. There's a, a quote I came across once. It said, I'm convinced that if Jesus offered a hundred ways to be saved, we would want 101. And I attributed that to maybe a guy named Jared C. Wilson, who's an author on, on Twitter. I saw it on Twitter I, I, like a year or two ago. I tweeted at him. I said, hey, is this you? He says, I don't know. Maybe. Doesn't, I don't know. So I don't know who this actually came from. It's like when one of... <laughs> It's like when one of you comes up to me and you're like, hey man, you remember that thing you said in that sermon like a year and a half ago? It really struck me. Like, I don't remember none of that. I don't even remember preaching that sermon, but I'm, I'm glad you do. So it's kind of like that. But maybe Jared C. Wilson on Twitter, maybe I made it up. Maybe it should say me. I don't know. The point is though, I agree with the sentiment. There's something in the fallen human condition where there's this rebellion and there's this pushback. Even if God offered us a hundred ways, we'd say, well, I mean, come on, what about, I want 101. Let me, let me make a, a caveat real quickly because there are some really bad examples throughout the course of Christian history of this idea of exclusivity being forced upon people. Uh, Christians of all types and stripes have come in and said, oh, Jesus is the one way, so we're going to force you to convert. We're going to force you to get baptized. There are people in maybe more recent Christian history here in America and the West where it's like this idea of Jesus as the one way to God is like, is like almost like gleefully like just thrown out there. Like it becomes like this combative sort of a thing instead of like an invitational, look how good Jesus is, look how good and gracious God is. It, it turns into this kind of combative is the word that comes to mind for me. So we as, we as followers of Jesus, we need to take ownership for that wherever we can and make sure that when we're talking about the exclusivity of Jesus, we're not doing so in a way that's wielding a sledgehammer, but it's like opening up a door to a beautiful pathway. The, 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 all that stuff that I read from Revelation 21 is, is behind the invitation and the offer. Sometimes people try to deal with this, this kind of resistance to exclusivity by saying, oh, well, the Bible doesn't really teach exclusivity. That's just your interpretation. That's just kind of a, a way you, you know, people have, have over the years wrongly looked at the Bible. Friends, I don't know how else to say it. Yes, the Bible does teach exclusivity. I'll give you five quick verses, including the one that we're, not including the one we're looking at, of a few dozen that I had on the table. Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 6, the most famous prayer, the, the, the people of Israel, the Shema prayer, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or actually even maybe a better translation of the Hebrew word echad is, the Lord is our God, him alone. Matthew 7, Jesus says you need to enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the path that leads to destruction, narrow is the gate that leads to, few, to, to salvation, and few are who find it. Acts chapter 4, the apostle Peter Oh, actually, sorry, uh, James and John. James and John are standing before the Sanhedrin and the council, and they're saying there is salvation in no other name besides God. And the apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 2, there is only one God and one mediator, one go-between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Friends, I don't know how else to say it. it. The Bible teaches exclusivity. There's one God, there's one path that he's offered for us for salvation, and it is Jesus Christ. Two things. Number one, I would just say we should be grateful that there's a path at all. We should be grateful that there's a path of salvation at all. Uh, when I was stranded on the 167, there was no path. There was no hope. And, 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 I'm, and there, I'm just there. I'm just stuck. I just live on the highway now. That's who I am. I'm a person who lives on the highway. 
You think my problem on the, on the, on the highway with the snow, that was bad. Talk about our problem with sin and death and, and, and all of that. The fact that God has made a path of salvation at all is incredibly gracious. And I would also say we might be surprised at who it is that finds their way into that narrow gate because Jesus even said right here, in my father's house, there's plenty of room. So it's not like he's stingy or or miserly. He's saying like, I'm welcoming all sorts of people into my family, but it's only going to come through Jesus. Now, non-Christians object to this. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because uh, there's a sermon by a pastor and author named Tim Keller. I I lean on for this section in particular. He has a sermon called, um, you know, Christianity is too exclusive, answering some of these objections. I've linked to it up on the website. You can find it on YouTube. It'll be really helpful. But but the non-Christian objection usually sounds a little something like this. It usually sounds something like, you know, all religions are, are equally valid. All religions are the same. So, it's very uh, wrong-headed, narrow-minded, and, and even arrogant of you to say that there's one right religion. There's, there's at least three problems that I see with that argument. The first one is it's just not factual. It's not factual to say that all religions are the same. And in fact, if you talk to even secular sociologists, people who study religions from not a, a position of like faith in Jesus, they'll all say like, that's just, that's just bupkis. All religions are not the same. They teach some very different things. Now, major world religions, yeah, there's a lot of overlap. Let's be kind to people. Let's love people. But that, that's like saying that, that, you know, curling and, you know, figure skating are the same because they both involve ice, right? Like, one is an incredible sport with grace and agility, and the other one is figure skating. And, uh, <laughs> uh I'll... <laughs> I love figure skating and I love curling. Prove me wrong. We'll fight in the lobby afterwards, right? It's, it's just not factual. It is not factually true to say that the, the Branch Davidians who hold up in Waco, Texas with David Koresh marrying all of the 14 and 15-year-olds, that that's the same as genuine Orthodox biblical Christianity. I'm sorry. It's just not factual. The other thing, though, is it's, it is actually arrogant to say that all religions are the same. Do you know that? It's arrogant to say all religions are the same. Okay, uh, this is an illustration. Tim Keller uses this in his sermon. You can find it in various places. You ever heard the blind men and the elephant illustration? There's a bunch of blind men. They come up to an elephant. One grabs the trunk and say, oh, well, elephants are like, you know, they're, they're long and flexible. And another one grabs the, the, the foot. It's like, oh, they're, they're, they're short and they're inflexible. And someone grabs the side. Like, oh, the elephants are like, and they all have these wrong perspectives on elephants because they only see part of it. What's the problem? In order to tell that story, you have to be the only person that sees the elephant in a world full of blind men. So it's pretty arrogant to say, oh, all these religions only see in part. So wonderful. Thank you, dear enlightened one, for having all of the pieces and all of the pictures. You're incredible. There's a quote actually from Tim Keller where he says, it is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions, namely that all are equal, is right. We are all exclusive about our beliefs in religion, but in different ways. And then let me just say, number three, uh, the, the idea that all religions are the same, I just think it's, it's, it's missing a piece. It's not, there's a flawed assumption. The assumption is, if I think that my religion is the one true way, I can't be nice to people. And I just disagree with that. And I disagree with that because A, the gospel tells me otherwise. The gospel instructs me that I'm to love those, even with those who I would call my enemy. I'm still to be loving to them, right? But even just in practicality, um, this last week, in the, in the last six days, one person in my community group, actually two people in my community group, have had conversations with people who don't believe in Jesus. One had a two-hour-long conversation with a Muslim man in which there was deep, genuine relational conversation. Oh, I believe this. I believe this. Well, what about this? Okay, well, what about that? Where the conversation went for two hours. Nobody punched the other one. Nobody screamed and cursed at the other one. It was actual substantive debate and dialogue for two hours. Another person in my community group had a two-hour-long conversation with someone who you would just kind of describe as your general Seattle progressive agnostic type of person. 
two hours. This is what I believe about Jesus. This is what I believe about the Bible. This is what I believe about uh, sexuality. This is what I believe about politics, for crying out loud. And they walked away at the end of the day as friends. It's just a flawed assumption that if we're going to preach exclusivity of Christ, it has to be done with a raised fist and a furrowed brow and spit coming off of our lips. We can have loving, gracious conversations in which I say, I love you. I do believe that Jesus is the only pathway to relationship with God. And I want you to walk down that path because I am convinced that he is where life is found. Now, non-Christians, we can talk with them. But I actually have maybe even a more pressing question because my understanding is that here in this gathering of the church, most of y'all are already Christians. And did you know that there is a Christian objection to the exclusivity of Christ? No, Pastor Aaron, I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I believe that no one can come to the Father except through him. Yeah, Well, then why do you and why do I worship idols? Why do you and I, if Jesus is the source of life, if Jesus is the well of living water, why do you and why do I drink from wells of filthy, dirty water? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, like, oh, Jesus is life, and then we run to escapism for our life. Oh, Jesus is life. We chase after relationship after relationship to fill that void and to fill that desire. You know, we might say that we're Christians and we're exclusivists, but the question I have is, are we functional pluralists? In our day-to-day life, we might say one thing with our words, but you and I, the tragic news is we pursue idols and we live as pluralists, even when we say We are exclusivists. You deny and I deny the exclusivity of Christ every time that we worship idols, every time we let our hearts be satisfied by wells of dirty water. And I I just would say to you, from, from where I'm sitting, I think this is a way bigger deal than non Christians denying exclusivity. It, it, it's not surprising to me that someone who hasn't tasted of the heavenly gift, that someone who hasn't like tasted and seen just how good God is, it's not that shocking that people would say, oh, there's lots of pathways to God. That, that just doesn't surprise me. But it does surprise me for myself and it breaks my heart for all of you when I see us running to other gods, to other idols to satisfy us when Jesus is the life. And friends, I would even submit to you this that the, the best way for us to show a skeptical, non-believing world that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life is not by just going out there and yelling at everybody that he's the way, the truth, and the life, but by being so satisfied in Jesus. So, like, like you are just drinking so deeply of that one true well of living water. You are so satisfied in Christ that you don't go seeking for life elsewhere, that you, you have tasted of the bread of life. You've drank and you've drunk of the living water and you just know that he is your source. And then when the storms come and the trials come and the hardships come, you have a peace and you have a joy that is just unshakable. And people who, who don't believe you say, man, I want some of that. Whatever it is that you've got, whatever it is you're feasting on, I want some of that. And then we say to them, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Come, taste, come, drink, come, meet with God. But it comes from a place of satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Oh, I just, have you just, I mean, just, here's the thought. God has provided us with a way of salvation. And it's not like God has provided us with like, well, you need to be saved. So I've got some scrap materials laying around in the shed of heaven. I guess let me put together some salvation device and you guys can be saved. Like, it's not like that. What could God the Father have given us that is greater than the blood of his one and only beloved son? This is the best possible means of salvation. This is the best possible. If there were a hundred options, the one option of Jesus would eclipse them all. That's how much God loves us. That's how much he has grace for us. That's how desirous that God is that we live with him in his house. 
for all of eternity. So my plea with you as brothers and sisters in Christ is don't go seeking satisfaction in other sources of life. Don't go running after other gods, however appealing they might sound in the moment. Let us run on the Jesus path to the the life that he offers to us each and every day and let that be our witness in both word and in deed to a watching world. God, I pray for us now as we enter into a time of response, as we go to celebrate the Lord's table, as we go to sing to you. God, I ask and I pray that you'd let us bring our hearts before you. Where are we seeking satisfaction in other sources of life besides you, Jesus? And would you forgive us of that? And would you remove those idols from our heart? May we know, Jesus, that you are the way to be with our Father, that you are the truth, that you would never lie to us or mislead us, and that you are life, the source of our well-being, not only for this life, but for the age that is to come. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. I'll turn it over to Pastor Shane to lead us through that. Let's go bring our hearts before God now. Sound City, for those of you, for those of us who are in here this morning who are Christians and disciples of Jesus, as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper together, I'd encourage you to go ahead uh, as you will. Just open up those communion elements that you picked up as you came through the door this morning. You can begin doing that. But I'd also encourage you to hold on to those for a minute so we can first take a moment to reflect on Jesus' instructions to his first disciples concerning this memorial meal that we're about to share together. This is the word of the Lord. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Then we're given this instruction. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Sound City, here in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul's reminding us that before we take the communion elements, before we receive the Lord's Supper together, we're to examine ourselves. So let's take a moment and let's do that very thing. Now, for some of us, that might mean uh, repenting and confessing sin and disobedience before our good and holy God. For others of us, it maybe means offering forgiveness to another, maybe that we've been holding a grudge against. But I know for all of us this morning, it at least means pausing to reflect on this truth that we've seen in God's word today, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So as a band plays, we'll take a few moments now in quiet prayer before God to examine our hearts a bit. And then after that, as you're ready, go ahead and eat of the bread, drink of the cup. And then in a few moments, we'll stand together again. We'll continue worshiping Jesus together with songs of praise. But it all starts with us taking a few moments to go be with our Father. And so do that now in quiet prayer, and the band will bring us out of that here in a minute.